0: Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, the ministry of Grace Point Church for Forsyth in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Our series on Hebrews. Called Jesus is Better. This week we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. You can find this on page 1002 in the blue Pew Bibles, which are in front of you, or you can find it on page 1188 in the red Pew Bibles, which are larger print. If you need either a blue Pew Bible or a red Pew Bible, we've got some in the back. We'd love for you to uh, use those uh, so that we can read the text together. As you're turning there, just want to remind you of a couple of things. Continue to pray for Camp K. This is their uh, last week. Uh, Also, we have a community group coming up next Saturday. We would love for anyone to come. It's not for any certain group. It's an opportunity for all of us to be together. If you would like to come, please make sure to see Teresa. She's got her hand up over there so that we can make sure to get enough food. So RSVP, so that we know. Also, as a regular reminder, we have in the back these notebooks. We would love for you to take one of these and use it for sermon notes or as a prayer journal, whatever the case may be. These are our gift to you. We'd love for you to take notes. We've got those back in the back. Alongside those, we also have our invitation cards. These are your opportunity to share with others about what time we meet and where we are and all the information about our church. It's got the information for services as well as a QR code to scan on the back with more information as it points to our website. It's an opportunity for you just to say, hey, don't know where you're at, but we'd love to have you come and worship with us. Now that you've turned to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for what it tells us about how Jesus is better. We thank you that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray that we would fix our gaze on him. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may sit down. Now, I don't know about you, but I was cute, acutely reminded this week of how forgetful I am. We had uh, quite the mighty storm come through on Thursday. Uh, I was driving when it hit, so I had a wonderful time of prayer as my car was... <laughs> uh, but as the storm was not just rain, was also wind. It knocked over many trees and brought much destruction with it. And the way that I was reminded of how forgetful I am is that our power was out. Now, some of you had power outages for a few hours. We had it for 52 hours. And so I had plenty of time to reflect on the modern conveniences of electricity. And I realized how quickly I forget. During the day, I would go into a closet and flip a switch and be like, oh, right, the power's out. I know that, but it's such a habit to just quickly flip that switch. And not just that, but it made me realize how much we rely on electricity. And so thank you, mighty storm of 2023, for reminding me of how forgetful I am. But you see, we're not just forgetful in things like that. We're forgetful of how glorious it is to be able to stand up until we break a leg or to move our arms until we break our arms. We take so many things for granted, and we're so forgetful of the many blessings that we have. And this doesn't just happen physically and practically. It happens spiritually, too. We forget how important the gospel is to us. We forget how much Jesus has done for us. But the author of Hebrews does not want us to forget. As commentator Williams says, Nothing could be more important to the man, woman, or child in the pew than this passage. Sounds important. So today we're going to dive into this passage and we're going to look and see what the author wants to remind us of about. Or what the author wants to remind us about. Number one, we're going to see he wants to remind us of our position. In verses 10 through 13. And number two, we're going to see that he wants to remind us of Jesus' victory in verses 14 through 18. So we're going to see our position and Jesus' victory. So let's start by diving into verses 10 through 13. Before we do that, it's important for us to remember that anytime we read the scriptures, we have to say, Context is... That's right, context is king. And what that means is that when we open the Bible, we have to understand who wrote the letter, who did he write it to, what was going on at the time, and what has been said. I don't often say this, but sometimes when we go through these sermons, we forget what was said right before this section. And so as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've already seen many times how Jesus is better. And last week in verses 5 through 9, we saw Christ's humiliation and exaltation for his people. He was humiliated in that he came down to be like us, made man, God and man, suffered as we suffer, was tempted as we are tempted, died on our behalf and was exalted, and he did that for us and ultimately for God's glory. If you look back at verse 9, it says this, but we see him for a little while who who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was humiliated and exalted for us to bring God glory. And so that's where we are in Hebrews. And now in verses 10 through 18, we're going to see the answer to the question, well, why did Jesus suffer? Verse 9 sets it up that he did suffer. He did become humiliated. He did come down to earth. He was not only persecuted while he was alive, but he suffered death. And so now the author of Hebrews is going to answer the question, why? So as we start, we look at verse 10, and there's so much in verse 10. There's so many deep truths in verse 10. Number one, we know this was not an accident. God had planned this from eternity past. We know throughout Scripture that God is sovereign, that big theological word that means he knows everything. Nothing surprises him. And since God is sovereign, Christ's life and death were a part of his plan. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God did these things intentionally. Nothing was an accident. Christ's suffering and death achieved God's plan and achieved the restoration of all things. This was not unexpected. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3 we see the fall. After God has made all things and drawn us into his presence, Adam and Eve sin. They break God's command and separate themselves from God. And in Genesis 3, God comes and finds them and starts to hand out the curses for breaking his law. And in verse 15, in speaking to the snake, and speaking to the devil, he says, I will put enmity between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've talked about this before in our sermons on the overview of Scripture. This is known by theologians as the proto-evangelion, or euangelion. Proto meaning first, like prototype, the first type. Evangelion is the Greek word for gospel. So Genesis 3.15, right after we fall, God makes the promise that it will be fixed. It will be repaired. God has a plan, and he's had that plan all along. And verse 10 reminds us of that, that this is, not unex, or this is not unexpected. It is a part of God's plan. Our salvation is not in jeopardy. Our salvation cannot fail because it's rooted in Jesus and in God's plan. Jesus did what had to be done, He took on human nature in order to save us through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Remember, this is important. God can't just overlook sin. He can't say, well, just do better next time. Sin has to be dealt with in some way, shape, or form. In another catechism, we did the Heidelberg Catechism in the earlier part of the service, but in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 152 says this, What doth every sin deserve at the hands of God? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. The Westminster Divines, when they wrote this, you can tell it was a while ago because it's in old English, basically said every sin, even the smallest sin, is against God. It's against God and his goodness and his holiness and his law, and it deserves his wrath and curse now and forevermore. So to deal with sin, which we cannot deal with, someone had to take our place. Someone had to do it for us. And it had to be a man, which is why Jesus is both God and man. Leo the Great, one of the early theologians, said, we should not be able to make use of the conqueror's victory if it had been one outside our nature. Basically, he's saying if Jesus had had, had died on our behalf as God, but not man, then we would have no claim to what he got for us. But because Jesus became man, suffered as we suffer, was tempted as we were tempted, then when he died on our behalf, we can take advantage of what he won for us. Without Jesus we would have no access to heaven or a relationship with God. Christ perfectly lived so that he could be the perfect sacrifice as a man. God is glorified through Christ and the salvation of his people. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what they earned for us brings God glory. Jesus glorified the Lord, not just in the way that he lived and the things that he did and the way that he sacrificed himself for us, but by doing it so that we could be God's people. God is the one who planned this. And it's beautiful because in verse 10, not only do we see that he's the one for whom and by whom all things exist, that he's the one that brought sons to glory, which shows us our position as adopted children of God, but he's the one who made Jesus the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect before he went through the suffering, but that the suffering was a part of his life that made his sacrifice perfect. What a deep and beautiful and glorious reminder of God's character and how he uses Jesus to bring us into the family of faith. And then the author of Hebrew goes on in verse 11, saying that Christ is the one who sanctifies. We are the ones who he sanctified. We are the ones who he set apart. We are the ones who are supposed to worship and serve and glorify the Lord, but he sanctifies us through Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed. To say, to call them brothers. So, Jesus, the one who sanctified, and the, one who's, the ones who are sanctified, we are brought glory to God because of what happened. Jesus taking on the human nature to save us is one of the core tenets of our faith. And it should be something we think about regularly, something we meditate on. Christian meditation is not the om, it is thinking about praying about, pondering the implications of the fact that Jesus did not have to come down to earth. He was glorified as God, but he humbled himself. He came to earth and did what we could not do on our own. Calvin in his institute says this, Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Jesus was both God and man. And we are called his brother because of what he has done. Jesus is better because he's done what we can't do. Jesus is better because he has earned and deserved what we can't get. And Jesus is better because through him, we are called children of God. Then in verses 12 and 13, we see these quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 12 says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In verse 12, in the beginning of verse 13, we see Psalm 22, verse 22 quoted. Christ shares our humanity, and therefore we are brothers with Christ. Context is? Okay, I caught some of you context is king, Psalm 22 has to do with Christ's death and resurrection. As we look at Psalm 22 deeper in scripture, it is affiliated with Christ's death and resurrection. And so we're being reminded that we are brothers to Christ because of his death and resurrection. And then in verse 13, the second half, he quotes Isaiah eight eighteen which stresses Jesus' dependence on the Father. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is dependent upon God to bring us into his presence. I like how verse 10 and 13 both bring our adoption and our sonship to the foreground. They remind us of our position as Jesus' people. Christ's humiliation was for us. We are sons, as verse 10 says. We are children, as verse 13 says. Brothers of Jesus, children of the Father. And these quotes, Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, remind us, remind us as the readers, remind us as the hearers of the author of God's faithfulness to his covenants. His covenants are his promises to us. And from the beginning, where we saw that proto-evangelion, he has promised us over and over and over again that he is there for us. And these quotes remind us as listeners that God not only made those promises, but he kept those promises and is keeping those promises. God has given us his promises, and he is keeping them too. And notice in verse 12 and 13, we also see the image of our Savior. He is our high priest, leading his people in songs of praise. Look back at verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What is Jesus doing with us as the new brothers of his and adopted children of God? He is leading us in praising the Lord for what the Lord did through Jesus. That's our position. Now let's look at Christ's victory in verses 14 through 18. Christ's death not only atones for our sin, which means it pays the price for our sin, but Christ's death also defeats the devil. Christ removes the grounds for the devil's accusations against us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, we read this. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The devil cannot argue against us. Jesus, through his death, defeats those arguments. We are justified in God's eyes. The death of Jesus destroyed the devil's primary accusing work. That primary accusing work was death. And so he uses the fear of death to drive us to sin, but Jesus removes the sting of death through his death, defeating death. 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 15, verses 50 through 57 say this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. We have no reason to fear death as believers, because in Jesus Christ has victory over death. What a glorious and wonderful promise that is for us. How can we do anything but praise His name? 1 Timothy 1 8 through 10 says this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted." The Lord tells us that through Christ, we are made whole. And this brings to mind the idea of death. So when we go to a funeral of a Christian brother or sister, it is appropriate for us to have sorrow for not being able to see them again, for missing them. But we don't mourn as people who have no hope. We don't mourn as though their death is the end instead we have hope for them because of what Christ has accomplished for them 1 Thessalonians 1 Well there's no 13 or there's no verse 13 in 1 Thessalonians 1 <laughs> We have hope because Christ has given us Jesus Until we too go to be with the Lord, we sustain ourselves with the word, the sacraments, prayer, and the family of faith. We are here but a short period of time. But God in his promises, and his covenants, has promised us that we will be in eternity with him forever. Christ did this for us. In verse 16, as we continue, we see that Jesus did not die for the angels. He died for us, his brothers and sisters, because angels don't die. Angels don't fear death. And so when Jesus defeats death, that's no big deal for angels, but it is a big deal for us. You remember, we've just talked about how Jesus is better than the angels all throughout the first chapter and even up into the beginning of the second chapter. And now we see that Jesus didn't die for the angels. Jesus died for us. And in verses 17 and 18, we are again reminded of our adoption as sons and daughters of the king, as brothers with Jesus because of Jesus' humanity. Jesus had to become man to give us what we have. We see in verses 17 and 18 the first use of this concept of high priest, which the author will continue to explain as he goes through Hebrews. But the idea of the high priest draws our attention to the images of the Old Testament and the Day of Atonement. Because only by sacrifice can we be made right with God. And in the Old Testament, under the law, that sacrifice was animals over and over and over again by the high priest. The blood spread upon the altar. But now in the new covenant, but now through Jesus, his death was enough once and for all. No more blood has to be shed. What a glorious and wonderful reminder. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The ultimate definition of love is that God loved us and sent Jesus. Romans 3.25 says something similar. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Jesus is this propitiation for us. You may be asking, what is this propitiation word, this theological word? John Owen describes it like this In the use of propitiation, there was always understood number one, an offense, crime, guilt, or debt to be taken away. Number two, a person who has been offended, who needs to be pacified, reconciled with. Number three, a person offending who needs to be pardoned and accepted. And number four, a sacrifice or other means of making atonement. Sometimes one is expressed, sometimes another, but the use of the word here has respect to them all. Propitiation means a crime, guilt, or death has been done that needs to be taken away god is offended and needs to be pacified we have offended him and need to be pardoned and a sacrifice has been made in order to do that remember part of the truth of christ being made man is that he faced every temptation that we face and he was victorious He forgives our sins. He helps us when we are tempted. We can trust Jesus. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, for those who know and trust Jesus for their salvation, we can rejoice. These verses are glorious and wonderful and great and true. Just as McWayan says, nothing could be more important than this passage. But if there's any, anyone here that doesn't know the truths of this gospel, find someone after the service and ask. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The verse begins with what we can do. The wages, what we earn. Of sin, what we do is death. On our own, we get death. But the free gift, not something we earned or deserved, of God, not of ourselves, is eternal life. And how do we get this free gift? Through Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for us, bridging the gap between what we can't do and what God did do. So, if you're confused about that or if you don't know about that, find somebody after the service. Ask them about that. This gospel brings hope in the darkness. And we are in a world that is filled with darkness and confusion and pain and suffering, and people need to know this hope. People need to know that Revelation 21.4 says one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more suffering, no more death, no more crying anymore. He will reverse the effects of sin and all the pain and suffering that we go through will be gone. And we will walk with him forever. So knowing these truths, seeing what the author is conveying, seeing how important and glorious and wondrous these verses are, What do we do? Having been reminded of who Jesus is and of his glorious work, how do we respond? Well, first, if we haven't trusted Christ, we need to. We need to make sure we trust Jesus and not ourselves. John Calvin in his institute says this, everyone who would obtain the righteousness of Christ must renounce his own. Think about that if you want the gift that God is offering, if you want the righteousness that God is offering, you have to let go of your desire and ability to try and earn or deserve it, because you can't. In order to get this, you have to let go of this. The first thing we have to do is trust in Jesus and not ourselves. The leaders are reading through uh, The Trellis and the Vine, a book on discipleship, and I really appreciated one of the things that he says in here. He points out that uh, Paul, throughout his ministry, talks about the ways that we are supposed to act, not because we can earn or deserve, but because of what Jesus has done. Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Thessalonians 1, all show an imitation of Jesus. Paul is copying Jesus, and we are called to copy Paul. We are called to live like Christ, imitators of the Lord. The authors say it is worth stressing that Paul wants them to imitate not only his doctrine but also his way of life. Paul never acts from Paul never abstracts ethics from doctrine because a right understanding of the gospel always leads to a changed life. A right understanding of the gospel always leads to a changed life. A right understanding of what Jesus has done and has earned for us and has given to us as a gift leads to a changed life. When we understand the gospel, Our lives will reflect that. Our lives will glorify the Lord. We'll stop trying to live in our own righteousness. We'll stop trying to be good enough for God. We'll stop trying to earn our salvation and instead, we will glorify and enjoy the Lord forever. We will live lives that reflect who Jesus is, modeling our lives after Him and His life. So we have to ask ourselves, where in our lives... Is the joy of the gospel evident? Where can people see that we've changed because of Jesus? How are we joyfully responding to the glory of the Lord every single day? It's will look different for each one of us. All of us are in different places. We live, work, study, and play in different realms, different spheres around different people. But all of us are called to respond to this great, glorious, good news that Jesus became man, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to defeat death by being risen again and is currently seated at God's right hand, praying for us, interceding for us, knowing what we're going through, loving us well, bringing us into his family. Has that changed your life? Jesus is better than anything you can do. And he calls us to respond in a manner that is appropriate to how glorious he is. How are you joyfully responding to the glory of the Lord every single day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. This text that McWilliams says nothing could be more important than this text. This text that reminds us of who Jesus is. We thank you that you have shown us there's nothing we can do. We have no hope in and of ourselves, no righteousness, no effort that will matter. But because of Jesus, because Jesus became man, we are called his brothers. We are called your children. So Father, we pray that you would help us to glorify you, to honor you, to live lives that joyfully respond to the glorious gift of your gospel. Father, we pray that we would not forget what you've done in and through us. Metaphorically speaking, Father, put the power out in our life so that we stop being lazy, so that we stop being forgetful, so that we stop re- uh, depending upon ourselves. And instead, Father, give us this right understanding of the gospel that leads to a changed life. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is better Because even though many of us still try to do what only he can do, we know that he did it. And he has given us that gospel grace. So let us live lives in truth of that grace. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.